Yeah, I just imagine you having like one espresso and people are like, is Mike into drugs now? It's like, nope, he just <laughs> had a sip of espresso. What's up, nerds? It's basketball. Welcome to Horse, a basketball podcast about everything except for the wins and losses. My name is Mike Schubert, and I am joined by my trusted co-host, the Chicago Bulls moving up in the draft, to my beloved New York Knicks moving down in the draft. It's Adam Mamawala. Adam, how's it going? You just love to see it, don't you? I personally don't, but I am happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm very, very happy with number four. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I feel like with both of our teams being so bad for so long that I am really rooting for just the happiness of my friends. So <laughs> if there was a team to jump up a bit, I'm glad it's you guys. And the Knicks moved down in the NBA draft lottery, which we have, I think, like 19 out of the past 20 years or something, which is the most Knicks thing possible. But it's that such is being a Knicks fan. <laughs> well, I guess you got to hope that eventually the Knicks are that team that drafts somebody a little lower than Maybe they were projected, and then that guy pans out and turns out to be a superstar when other teams passed on him. Maybe you can look at it that way. Yeah, I, that's the way I've been trying to silver lining this one, because I always silver line stuff when the Knicks do things that make me sad or sad things happen to the Knicks. And my one way that I've been trying to reason this is, well, at least we can't make a poor decision with a high pick and then get made fun of it for it. Like at eight, it's kind of a, oh, you got to pick whoever falls to you kind of thing. And maybe we'll luck out for once. That is true. And you know what else uh, also has silver linings? Uh, the, 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 the playbook from that movie? <laughs> uh, I was going to say all of Walt Clyde Frazier's suits, but also that. Oh, very, very true. That makes me very happy. Good. I almost forgot that Clyde Frazier existed because the Knicks haven't played basketball in so long. <laughs> So, Adam, before we talk about basketball stuff, let's take a little bit of a break to center ourselves in our personal Zen room, which we like to call the Teal Memorial Locker Room. Teal's doing great, unlike the Knicks. <laughs> unlike the Knicks and the Bulls. What a truly sad state of affairs that you and I host a basketball podcast and <laughs> our two teams comprise 25% of the uninvited bubble teams. Yay. Go us. <laughs> So speaking of Go Us, you know is helping us go and make this podcast? Who? It's our new patrons. Oh, tell us about them. So shout out to Savannah Sneeringer and Timo Ellers. And I also want to clarify that our newest producer level patron, Alex Weiss, would like their name to be changed. And going forward, they will be known as NBA legend Robert Sacri, who is the most prolific bench celebration dance NBA player of all time, and he will certainly be discussed in horse at some point in the near future. Hopefully sooner than later. Mm -hmm. So Robert Zachary joins our existing list of producer-level patrons who, of course, we want to give so much love and thanks to. They are Polly Burridge, Kendra Hadley, Adam Hartwick, Wouter Vandermaiden, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Catherine Lee, Siobhan Ellsbury, Shoo-Bidi-Bidi, Godzilla got busy, Steph Curry for three, He Sells Seashells, LeBron James, Matt Barger, Lobster Bisquay, and now Robert Zachary, the NBA legend himself. Love it. If anything from this list, I have gotten very good at saying he sells seashells. <laughs> Except right there, but otherwise. I know. I got, <laughs> I'm getting better. Improvement. Yes. yes. No, it's, it's, I'm always very impressed. <laughs> so you know who else is impressing me with the fact that they are keeping our show going? Who's that? It's our sponsors. Can you tell me actually about our first sponsor, Brotherly Coffee? I would love nothing more than to tell you about Brotherly Coffee because I'll tell you something. I have had personal experience drinking Brotherly Coffee and it is 
damn good. But if you've never heard of it before, Brotherly Coffee is a small batch roasting company based out of Houston, Texas. What up, Houston? Mm -hmm. Even though they are a smaller operation, they've been able to work directly with importing companies in Houston to thoughtfully showcase some of their favorite coffees. And rather than going out and paying for coffee by the cup, which adds up, you can sign up for a subscription where you can change which coffee you get at any time. Coffee, as we know, has been present for so many great conversations and friendships in our own lives. And they really believe that there's something special when you brew a cup for someone. So brew one for yourself, brew one for a friend, brew one for your wife, husband, whoever it might be. It's very good coffee. So if you want to try Brotherly Coffee, go to brotherlycoffee.com slash horse and get yourself a bag. Yeah, you will get your first bag free if you sign up for a subscription. And I can also say from experience, I don't drink coffee, but Kelly has gotten this coffee and she loves it. She brought it with us when we went to Texas and the entire Beckman family is big fans of all the different varieties that they have. They have a couple different roasts. And the guy who runs the company, Matheson, is my old roommate from college and he's genuinely one of the nicest human beings I know, and the coffee is very good. He takes coffee very seriously. So even though I don't drink coffee, I do know that it's very good because there's many people in my life, now Adam included, who think it's some good stuff. Absolutely, and when you subscribe, you will get your first bag of coffee free. And the cool thing about it is that you can change up your subscription whenever you like to switch the kind of coffee you're getting. Now, uh, if I may, Mike, I would also like to do a free ad read for somebody who doesn't give us any money, but there's a story behind it. Okay. So... When Brotherly Coffee decided to sponsor us, thanks again, Brotherly Coffee, we were lucky enough to get a few free bags to try out their product, which, as I've alluded to, is fantastic. But when it arrived at my apartment, I was super excited. Even the box smelled good. I open it up. It's just beans, baby. Mm -hmm. It's just beans. <laughs> now, I have a coffee machine, but I do not have a coffee grinder. And I was very distraught because I really wanted to try the coffee. I didn't know how it would work. So here's my free ad read. Are you someone who doesn't have a coffee grinder but wants to grind coffee beans? Well, if you have a Nutri Ninja, it will do that for you. And it won't even ruin it for future smoothies. So if you are in a pinch and you want to grind some coffee beans and make an inordinate amount of noise that your roommates may or may not feel great about, I highly suggest the Nutri Ninja but make sure to use Brotherly <laughs> Coffee in it. I also do believe you can get it ground when you For go sure, to brotherlycoffee.com. Yeah. I, just didn't, I, just, I just didn't specify what I want. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So, yeah, go to brotherlycoffee.com and you'll get your first bag of coffee free when you sign up for a subscription. It's tasty, it's affordable, and it's made by a very nice human being. Hooray, small businesses! Woo! Hooray, small businesses. And also, I don't fully trust you as a person knowing that you don't drink coffee, but I still love you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so hyped up all the time because I watch basketball. That's true. You are kind of one of those like high on life people, but it's not even bullshit. Like you really just are that guy. <laughs> so we also have one other sponsor for this episode of Horse, and that is Prediction Strike. Prediction Strike is the only performance-based sports stock market where you can buy and sell shares of professional athletes as if they were stocks. This has me very excited because I have long before I knew this service existed said, I wish I could buy stock in X. Like, I know this player is going to be good. There's no like tangible way for me to bet on just like this player getting better until now with Prediction Strike. So how it works is you go to predictionstrike.com, you create an account, and then you deposit funds to buy, sell, and hold shares of your favorite players, just like you would do a real stock. The value of players will change based upon game performance, and then you can trade your shares for players at any time as long as that player isn't currently in a game. So we just got hooked up with the site and they gave us some credits and we're checking it all out now. It seems pretty fantastic. I'm excited to see how it works as the NBA bubble continues. And I am just excited that I can finally put my 
money where my mouth is when I say like, oh, I'm buying X stock in a player, which is just a, a general phrase people use a lot. But now I can really do it. Do you have any idea how much Robert Sacre stock I'm going to buy? <laughs> oh, baby. You know, he could come back. He's only like 38. Who knows? He'll come out of retirement. There should be a bonus, a bonus tier for that. Yes, for sure, for sure. So as a horse listener, you can get signed up. If you go to predictionstrike.com and you sign up with the code horse, you will get an additional $10 on your first deposit of $20 or more. So again, go to predictionstrike.com, use that promo code horse, and when you put in 20 bucks, you'll get $10 for free. Hello, great, wonderful. And now you can start buying stock in some wonderful players and I guess buy some Knicks stock because it's never been lower. <laughs> so there's we can only go up. <laughs> the Knicks are the uh, going out of business sale of the NBA. It's like Kodak, which we made jokes about in this podcast. I joked about buying Kodak stock when I was making fun of Reggie Miller for saying Kodak moment. I was like, what's Kodak stock? Like $3 and it's it was like a buck 50. And now Kodak is making COVID stuff oh. and their stock like went up to 30 something a share. Wow. See, Reggie Miller knew what he was talking about after all. <sighs> I will say uh, after the initial jump, they are back down to $6.77 a share. But there was a day where they went from $2.10 a share to uh, $33 in one day. And there is so. your Kodak moment. <laughs> Oh, what a perfect note to go on to our next segment of the show, which we like to call Full Court Press. Get it? Like the news? I think I finally do get it. Was it that New York Times feature? Is that what sealed the deal? <laughs> I, until I read that, I had no idea what we were even talking about. <laughs> Hey there, this is Mike from the present. I just wanted to jump in before this full core press. First, to give a bit of a content warning to say that most of what we discuss here is about police brutality. So if that is something that you don't want to listen to right now, we have a timestamp in the description of this podcast where you can just skip on to the next segment, which is Adam's three on three. Second, the back half of the full core press deals with the player's decision to sit out a game of the playoffs, to go on strike, to protest. And we learned of this news while we were recording this episode. So it is very fresh. It is very raw, and we also, now at the time of release, know a little bit more, so the NBA playoffs have resumed. The players have worked with the owners to create a new social justice coalition. There will be dedicated messages that will play during advertising spots of the playoffs that talk about awareness and social justice and things of that nature. And finally, they have worked with the owners to turn many NBA arenas into voting polls for the general election in 2020. So a lot of good things happening from the result of this strike, and you'll hear Adam and I in this full core press just giving our genuine off-the-cuff reactions to learning this news in the moment. So with all that being said, let's get into our first segment, which we like to call Full Court Press, Get It Like the News. Yes, I do get it because it's me, Mike Schubert, and I think that is a very good joke, Mike Schubert. So there are two things that we want to cover in this Full Court Press. Let's get the Masai Ujiri one out of the way because that is just uh, an interesting situation that thankfully now has a bit of a better ending. Right. So if you weren't aware, when the Toronto Raptors won the playoffs last year, Masai Ujiri, who is the president of the Raptors, he was trying to get onto the court as the Raptors were about to win the final game. They were in Oakland, so they were away while they were playing, and he was stopped by personnel, a security personnel, that gave him a really hard time because he didn't have his credentials. It's like a lanyard. He wasn't actively wearing it. He was getting it out of his pocket. And there was a bit of a scuffle between the two of them. Masai said that the security guard pushed him first. The security guard said that he was attacked by Masai. They ended up pressing charges against Masai Ujiri. But the reason we're talking about it now is that I believe Masai and his legal team countersued and their legal team got the body cam footage and it shows that not only was Masai pushed first, but he was pushed 
two and a half times before he did any sort of retaliation. Masai Ujiri is a black man, and unfortunately, we have seen this kind of thing happen too often, but I guess it's good now that the truth is out there, but it just sucks that it came to all of this. It really does, and the footage clearly shows the security guard being far more aggressive than is necessary. Now, the the only thing I can say to it is that he doesn't like fully take out the lanyard, so I can see the reason that the security guard would have asked him, can I just see your lanyard and make sure you're allowed to get onto the court? but he immediately escalates the situation, which is what we see all the time. And it also is a frightening state of affairs when even when you're somebody in the highest possible position wearing what I would imagine is like a $2,000 suit, you still have to deal with that if you're a black person in this country. Mm -hmm. It's really unfortunate, and I agree. There's so many more calm ways to approach this. All you gotta do is stop him. The fact that he pushed him twice was not warranted at all. And then I said two and a half earlier because the only time Masai pushes him back is when the guy is going to push him a third time. So then he kind of braces it. And the shock on Masai Ujiri's face when he gets pushed both of the times is truly saddening. And speaking of saddening, Masai Ujiri released a statement. We'll put a link to it. He said that, quote, what saddens me most about this ordeal is that the only reason why I am getting the justice I deserve in this moment is because of my success. Because I'm the president of an NBA team, I had access to resources that ensured I could demand and fight for my justice. So many of my brothers and sisters haven't had, don't have, and won't have the same access to resources that assured my justice. And that's why Black Lives Matter. And that's true. It's just so many of these things, the security officer clearly lied in the suit that they filed against Masai Ujiri, and the only reason he was able to have this justice is because he has a lot of money and could put together a good legal team, and not a lot of other people have that same luxury, and then it becomes a your word versus ours thing, and if you don't have a good legal team, you're screwed. Yeah, and it's one of the situations where the kinds of people who never want to acknowledge racism existing will say, well, he should have had his lanyard out, and he should have been following directions, and if he had just done what he was told, this wouldn't have happened. It's like, first of all, that's complete bullshit, and second of all, if you're really telling me that you think Steve Ballmer would have dealt with the same same situation if it were the Clippers there. And so, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's just, it's, it just would not have happened. Or that Steve Ballmer would have been pushed twice by the security guard. Exactly. And and I think he, he makes a good point in saying that it's truly sad that it takes having those kinds of resources to even have any semblance of justice because that's not usually how it works. And I don't know if you saw that kind of strange special that Dave Chappelle released outdoors where he was talking about what was happening with George Floyd and with the, the protests and pointing out the fact that he was at one time pulled over by a cop who ended up killing an unarmed black man literally the next day. Wow. And in that interaction with him, the police officer could tell he was scared and Chappelle said, I-, I shouldn't have to be Dave Chappelle to not be afraid. Yeah. You know, you talk about the lanyard situation. Oh, he should have had his lanyard out. I had an opportunity. Uh, I'm a big tennis guy. And I got a lanyard at the U.S. Open because I was doing an interview there one day. And I discovered that I could just keep going back every day. I wasn't supposed to do this. I was using that lanyard. And I went into places at the U.S. Open facility that I had no business being in by just quickly flashing my lanyard and walking past people, and nobody said shit to me for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And there's a privilege involved in that. It's the unfortunate truth of the situation is that Masai Ujiri's appearance is what led to this confrontation. If he was a white owner of a team, 
even if you're going to say that the security officer probably was just doing their job and they were going to stop him, the response to someone, like you said before, of a Steve Ballmer versus this, I don't see this person pushing Steve Ballmer twice. Because Masai Ujiri is black, they assume, ah, oh, this guy's probably not where he's supposed to be. Right. And I think, unfortunately, I would imagine that a lot of security guards at an NBA game or that sort of job, it's kind of the equivalent of like the mall cop philosophy where it's like, I have this very small amount of power mm-hmm. and I'm going to use it way more than is necessary because it makes me feel good about myself. Yeah. It's very sad. So the entire situation that happened to Masai Ujiri was incredibly unfortunate, but thankfully the truth is now out there and he will at least have some justice. I'm thankful and happy for him. And this leads into what we want to talk about next. It's something that broke while we were recording this episode is that the Milwaukee Bucks are going to be protesting the NBA playoffs. They're not going to be playing in game five of the NBA playoffs so that they can protest what is happening in Wisconsin with the shootings that happened to Jacob Blake, as well as the shootings that took place at the protest for what happened to Jacob Blake. For context, we're recording this at 4.50 p.m. on Wednesday, August 26th. This is, I I don't even have the words. This was tweeted a couple of minutes ago. So this is very fresh, but this is... I think a great move. I think so too. And I think if you heard any of the interviews in the past couple of days, um, George Hill was very blunt about how he felt about it. And he's like, we shouldn't even fucking be here. Like, this is why we said we didn't want to do this is because it was going to distract from the real issues that are going on in our country right now. And I don't even feel like we should be here. So I'm not completely surprised that this happened. I, I agree with you. I think it's a great move. And it's also kind of unprecedented. But if there is ever a time for for this to happen, I mean... How how would it have seemed for the Milwaukee Bucks to be playing a basketball game on a court that says Black Lives Matter emboldened on it, given the context of what's happening in their home state right now? Yeah, for everyone unaware, this all started with what happened to Jacob Blake, who was someone in Wisconsin in Kenosha. I have family in Kenosha. It's, it's very strange. To oh, me. wow. Yeah. So yeah, Jacob Blake in Kenosha was breaking up a fight between two women and the police came to the whole situation. He was leaving the situation. He was going back into his car, which I believe three of his kids were in. And he was not necessarily resisting arrest from the officers, but he was walking away from them as they were trying to get his attention and stop him. And he went back into his car and was unfortunately shot seven times in the back. And thank God he's alive, but uh, what I was reading today is that he's paralyzed from the waist down and obviously still in, in very serious condition. Frankly, the idea of even surviving being shot seven times in the back at point blank range is, is miraculous, but it's just another incident in a long, long, long line of incidents this year and for any year you can imagine before that of police brutality towards black people in this country. Yeah. It's incredibly unfortunate. I also unfortunately have seen the video and it's just completely senseless. It makes no sense why they decided to do that seven times. While he opened the door, his kids are there. Like it's, it's truly devastating. I am sad to hear that he is paralyzed from the waist down, but you're right. It is, it's a miracle that he survived. Yeah, I I shared a a quote today on my Instagram that said, if your response to seeing a black man shot over and over in the back is to say he should have followed instructions, you are the problem. Not complying with an officer is not punishable by death under any circumstances, let alone an extrajudicial execution. And that's completely right. That's the first instinct that people have who want to defend police officers and say, well, let's let the facts play out. (laughs) I'm sorry, but when you're shooting somebody who's walking away from you in the back seven times, 
it's really hard for me to imagine the justification for that. Even if you have done something wrong, even if you've done something that is a crime, you do not deserve to die. Yeah, that's literally what court is for, is to determine what somebody's punishment is going to be. And God knows there's plenty of issues with that. But in the context of an arrest being made, it's always these things that escalate from a very minor situation to this. And it's, I, I, I don't even know what to say about it anymore. Jacob Blake was breaking up a fight. He was doing a good thing. And then he was just trying to get back into his car with his kids. And I can't even imagine being those kids and seeing all that happen in front of you. But the situation in Kenosha got even worse because there were protests in response to what happened to Jacob Blake. And recently, there was a shooting at the protests. Two protesters died, one was injured, and thankfully the person who did this was arrested and he is being charged with intentional first-degree murder. But it's just so sad and it's awful that not only Jacob Blake can't just be a black person in Wisconsin, but then also people can't protest an atrocity without even worse things happening to them. So with these two things happening in such quick succession to each other, I support the Milwaukee Bucks for doing this. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and frankly, anybody who doesn't or who's who's annoyed that they don't get to watch a playoff game, fuck you, honestly. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important. It's going to really, truly raise a lot of awareness. Kind of like I feel like the NBA raised a lot of awareness for COVID when they shut down as like the first premier sports league to do so. That was a big deal. I think this is going to have the same effect. LeBron James just had an all caps tweet about this. Woj right now just tweeted that the Lakers are possibly going to boycott game five, which is supposed to be later tonight against the Blazers. There's a lot of stuff going on. And I think that they're using their platform for good. Yeah, I, I, I have nothing to add to that other than that I completely agree. Yeah, so obviously because we're recording this on August 26th when it's happening, we don't have all the information, but we wanted to get our initial thoughts out there for all of you. We will continue to monitor how this changes and we'll, I'm sure, be talking about this more on the next episode of Horse. One, two, three. Three, two, one. Three on three. So for my three on three today, sometimes in basketball and in all sports, star players underperform and sometimes kind of mediocre players overperform, and that's a lot of fun. So for today's three-on-three, three, we're going to talk about the three worst games from three of the best players to ever play, and the three best games from three guys who were kind of eh. I love it. I think it's great. I'm very excited for the great performances by the eh players. That is exciting to me. Yeah, I'm going to end with those. Good, 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 good. So for number three on my list of great players playing not so great in particular games, Michael Jordan is number three on the list. My boy, everybody's mm -hmm. boy, Michael Jordan. The worst game of his career, from what I could find, it's a little bit of a technicality because it was in his second comeback when he was playing with the Washington Wizards. So he was older at this point. He was in his late 30s. But on December 15th, 2002, in a game that the Washington Wizards played against the Toronto Raptors, Michael Jordan went one of nine from the field and ended the game with just two points. Wow, that is very surprising. Two points. And this is somebody who I think finished in single digits, a single digit number of times, meaning in his thousands of games, he only had less than 10 points a handful of times. So mm -hmm. he only had two that night against the Raptors. He did have nine assists and eight rebounds. So it wasn't like a completely horrible game, mm -hmm. but just the idea of Michael Jordan at any stage in his career ending a game with two points is almost impossible to believe. One of the things I enjoyed about this when I looked it up is that predictably the next game, Jordan immediately came out and scored 30 points on 12 of 18 <laughs> shooting and then added 34 points on another great shooting performance the following night. And the irony of this whole situation is that people think of Jordan's time on the Wizards when he came out of retirement a second time as being kind of a joke. 
But if you look at his stats, he was still extremely good. He averaged mm-hmm. 21.2 points, almost six rebounds and four and a half assists in those final two seasons with the Wizards and probably could have kept playing after that. So yeah, I'm looking at the stats right now. He was still a very solid basketball player. And it, the bouncing back thing is funny. It's like me in quarantine. I'll have days where it's eight o'clock and I realize I've taken like five steps the whole day uh, <laughs> and it's pretty sad. So then the next day I'm like, I'm running a 5K. <laughs> so I like that right. he made up for his iPhone health stats saying he only walked 0.6 miles and then the next day walks 10. And I'm sure for somebody like Michael Jordan, anytime he came out after a bad game, there was always that extra motivation to uh, put a big number on the scoreboard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Number two on the list of exceptional players having not-so-exceptional nights is Wilt the Stilt. Wilt Chamberlain, a man we've spoken about numerous times before, but Wilt Chamberlain, if you're not familiar with him, one of the most prolific scorers and rebounders, if not the preeminent scorer and rebounder ever in NBA history. His nickname was the Big Dipper. That's a good time. I miss those types of NBA nicknames I so know, aren't they badly. Great? Oh, they're so good. All these acronym names are not fun. All these things with the numbers and letters in them. I want just people to be compared to large objects. The Big Dipper. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes I'm very much into it. And also, he was a star. Yeah, hey, it's perfect. So it works. Now, Will Chamberlain is such a prolific scorer and rebounder that he holds the all-time records in the NBA for single-game stats, including 100 points in a game, most rebounds in a game, with 55. He also, and I cannot overstate how truly absurd this is, averaged in a single season over 50 points and over 27 rebounds per game. It's obnoxious. <laughs> it's just obnoxious. It's, it's like almost inconceivable. Yeah, it's it's just ridiculous. He also, this is I think my favorite stat about him. He is the only player with a triple-double-double. So what that means is over 20 of three categories. Whoa. The assists are what blows me away. There was a game in which he had 22 points, 25 rebounds, and 21 assists. That's just like when you're playing a game that is so easy to you that you have to do something to switch it up and make it more entertaining. In college, I found my old backyard baseball CDs from when I was a kid. I don't know if you ever played that computer game growing up. Oh yeah, big time. But I took the data off it. I used an emulator so I could play backyard baseball on my computer. And I found out because it is a game for children, it is very easy. So I had to like do things to make it fun where I made my team (laughs) really bad so that it was a challenge. And this is what it feels like. Will is like, oh man, I just keep scoring 50 points and getting 27 rebounds. I guess I'll get 21 assists tonight. It's it's unbelievable. And I'm, I'm very impressed by the 21 assists. Now, we just talked about what an incredible scorer he was. What would be your guess if I if I made you guess what his career low was in, in any particular game? I'm going to say zero. You would be right. Hey! On March 27th, 1973, Will Chamberlain scored zero points. He played 46 minutes. Whoa! It's not like he barely was in the game. Oh, my God! That's correct. Will Chamberlain played 46 minutes in a game without a single field goal or free throw. And even weirder, in the Lakers' next game, the last game of his regular season career, He scored one point, going 0 for 1 from the field and 1 for 2 from the line. This whole thing is very strange to me, and I was trying to look more into it. According to Curtis Harris, who wrote this piece from the Sporting News, his theory is that Wilt got annoyed when people would criticize him for not scoring enough, and he may have done it out of spite. It feels intentional. Right. The theory is that he was sick of people saying, oh, Wilt's not scoring enough, and he's like, oh, you're saying I'm not scoring enough? Well, I'll really show you what it's like for me to not score enough, because even at this later stage of his career, he still averaged 
like 15 to 20 points. It's a very odd one, but apparently Wilt Chamberlain just got annoyed and was like, all right, I'm just not going to score. Gosh, there have been players that have done that in the past. That feels like a Wilt Chamberlain move from what I know about Wilt Chamberlain. But yeah, I mean, at least with Jordan's bad game, he still shot it nine times, so he was at least trying. To only shoot it once when you're Wilt Chamberlain and you've averaged 50 points a game in a season, you know, over a point a minute, it (laughs) it feels strange to score zero in 46 of them. Yeah. No, it's it's very unusual. Now, number one on the list, and I I don't want to be too much of a hater, But given the context of when this game took place, I have to give it to LeBron James, and here's why. I'm sure you probably remember this game, Mike. We're talking about the first year of the big three, so this is the first year that LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh are playing together in Mm -hmm. Miami, and they are public enemy number one. People hate them, everybody thinks they sold out. There's a lot of vitriol directed towards that team, and it becomes this thing that unifies other NBA fans. (laughs) It's like, we are all going to root against the Miami Heat. So it comes to the NBA Finals. The Miami Heat have defeated my beloved Bulls in a heartbreaking series. At this point, the Heat are up 2-1 to in the NBA Finals, and they have a chance to really get a stranglehold on the series. Instead, they lose Game 4 86-83, and in 45 minutes and 43 seconds of action, so that means LeBron only sat 2 minutes and 17 seconds, he scored 8 points. 8 points in a Finals game, when he's the best player in the NBA by far, I think, at that time. 3 of 11 from the field, 2 of 4 from the free throw line. Now, he did have nine rebounds and seven assists, but if you were the best player on planet Earth and you score eight in a finals game, I'm not going to not have you be number one on this list. No, man. I remember this finals very well because I, where everyone else zigged, I zagged. I actually really liked the Heat that year. Boo. I thought it was fun. I think it's because I'm a Yankees baseball fan <laughs> where I enjoy, like, everybody, everybody hates the Yankees. And I appreciated that LeBron was now the villain. And I didn't like LeBron before. I thought he was annoying when he was on the Cavs. I thought he flopped around too much. And I then started to like him when he was on the Heat. I thought it was fun. I also thought it was fun to like root for the team that everybody decided we all hate them. And I was like, I'm going to like these guys. It's fun. They're very good at basketball. And yeah, it was very disappointing to watch this particular performance. It was upsetting. And LeBron's talked about this finals in particular, but he was bad the whole series. And it was very shocking to see such a good player with such a good team perform so poorly. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And obviously he has won many rings since then. But at that time when he still had not won any, uh, it was uh, it was a pretty tough look for him, honestly. Yeah. OK, I want to get happier. Tell me about the the boys that aren't that great at basketball becoming bodaciously bonkers. I went full alliteration there. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Now, I had certain criteria for these players. It it wasn't just enough for them to be obscure. They also had to be like very mediocre average-wise throughout their careers. Mm -hmm. Because there were a lot of names that I found. There was someone whose name was Dave Bing, who presumably went on to found a very unsuccessful search engine. (laughs) But when I looked into him, like he actually was good in that time. I just haven't heard of him because it was so long ago. So my criteria was like a 10 points per game average or less was pretty much what I was looking for. So first up on this list, the number three spot goes to a small forward by the name of Tracy Murray. Uh, Tracy Murray was initially selected by the San Antonio Spurs in the first round of the 1992 NBA draft with the 18th overall selection. This is kind of an interesting oddity. Just seven days after being drafted, he was traded twice on the same day. That feels 
illegal. It feels, at the very least, upsetting for Tracy Murray and his family, I would assume. There is a rule now, I believe, that you can't get traded within the first month that you're drafted if it doesn't happen on draft night. That's what happened with Andrew Wiggins. Remember when he got drafted by the Cavs, but then they were going to trade in order to get Kevin Love, but they had to wait, so the Cavs had to weirdly act like they didn't have Andrew Wiggins on their team. It was very strange. Yes, I think you may be right. There's a a rule against that at this point. But at that time, it was allowed. And a week after the draft, he was traded first to the Milwaukee Bucks for a player named Dale Ellis. And then he was traded from the Bucks to the Portland Trailblazers for a name who I'm probably going to mispronounce, Ala Abdel Nabi, who I've not heard of, but definitely did not score 50 points in a game. (laughs) So he's already traded twice before he even plays a game, and then he bounces around all over the place. So in his career, he ends up playing for the Blazers, the Houston Rockets, the Toronto Raptors, the Washington Bullets, then renamed the Wizards, the Denver Nuggets, uh, the Toronto Raptors, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Trailblazers again, and then a bunch of teams in Greece. So he he makes some moves. He goes all over the place. Not a bad player by any stretch of the imagination, but overall career average, nine points per game, two and a half rebounds per game, 0.8 assists per game. So not an elite yeah. level player. I'm sure he still made millions of dollars playing basketball, which is great. I'm sure he did just <laughs> fine. And here's one interesting stat. He was not a stranger to scoring large quantities of points because at his high school in California, as a senior, he led the nation in scoring with 44.3 points per game, which is absurd. So he scored over 3,000 points in high school, which at the time was the highest total ever in the state of California. So... No stranger to scoring a lot, but a bit of a stranger to it in the NBA, except for February 10th, 1998, a day that we all remember, (laughs) when, with the Washington Wizards, Tracy Murray just had the absolute game of his life and dropped a 50 spot on 18 of 29 from the field and 9 of 10 from the free throw line. Good for him. That's fantastic. Good for him indeed. It was quite a performance. Number two on the list, and I particularly like this guy just because of how physically tiny he is. He's a player named Dana Barros. Okay. And let me give you his uh, his stats here. 5'11", 165 pounds. That is one inch shorter than my exact measurements. I am six foot, 165 pounds. I can do it. I'm going to go train. <laughs> exactly. That Those are the people that always make me feel worse about myself because it's much easier to rationalize. Like, oh, of course, I'm not a professional athlete because I'm not seven feet tall, 300 pounds. But then when there's a guy like Mr. Fancy Pants Dana Barros at 5'11", <laughs> 165, it's just like, well, okay, clearly it's not my physicality. It's just that I am not good enough. <laughs> but this was uh, late 80s is when he was drafted. He began his professional career in 1989 when he was selected in the first round of the draft by the Seattle Supersonics. Get basketball back in Seattle. Get men's basketball back in Seattle. The Storm are unreal, and they are destroying the WNBA right now. Brianna Stewart and Subert are torching the WNBA. (laughs) I I rephrase my statement. Get NBA basketball (laughs) back in Seattle. There we are. Now, he was the backup point guard behind... Who would you think that would be at that time for the Seattle Supersonics? Gary Payton. The glove, Gary Payton. So not a lot of playing time to be had. Barros was a he's a fairly good player. He averaged 10 points throughout his career, three and a half assists, 1.9 rebounds. But on one special evening in March of 1995 against the eventual champion Houston Rockets, hmm. Dana Barros on a particularly bad Philadelphia 76ers team, dropped 50 points and an almost as impressive eight rebounds considering his size. Yeah. 21 of 26 from the field, <gasps> including six of eight from three-point land. And here's my favorite part. The 76ers, who after this game dropped to 17 and 45 on the season, <gasps> despite Dana Barros's 50 points, still lost by 29. That, what? <laughs> 
was the, the final, final score? The final score was 136 to 107. He scored almost half the team's points. And it wasn't nearly enough. He would have had to have scored literally 80 points for them to win that game. I also love that 50 is just such a universal number of player that we don't expect going off. We talked about Corey Brewer's 50-point game in the past, and these here, it's like 50 is the trademark number of going bonkers in basketball. 50 is like the number. That's what's so inspiring about sports is that on any given day, on any given night, somebody who ordinarily is not capable of this can just have it all come together. And as somebody who loves baseball, like that's one of the coolest things to me that there are guys who have thrown perfect games and no hitters who were not good pitchers, but mm. just on one particular day, everything just lined up and they had that moment in time. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to see. All right, who's the number one? I'm really hyped. Number one is a man named Tony Delk. Oh, Tony Delk. Fairly good player, right? <laughs> kind of similar stats to the first two players I mentioned. So 9.1 points per game, 2.5 rebounds per game, and 1.9 assists per game. He was not quite as small as Dana Barris, but also a fairly tiny guy at 6'2", which is small by NBA standards, but big for, you know, human standards. He was picked 16th overall in the 1996 NBA draft. And the reason that is of note is that that is widely considered to be the greatest draft in the history of the NBA. So here are the players drafted before Tony Delk. They include Allen Iverson, Marcus Camby, Stephon Marbury, Ray Allen, Antoine Walker, Kobe Bryant, mm. Peja Stoyakovic, and Steve Nash. Those guys were all in the top 15. They're all phenomenal players. Incredible players. So Tony Delk is drafted 16th. The next pick is Jermaine O'Neal, who goes on to have mm -hmm. a fantastic career. That draft was so deep that future Defensive Player of the Year, Ben Wallace, didn't even get drafted. Right, right, I do remember that. So frankly, being drafted 16th is, is pretty impressive given the company. So Tony Delk finished his career with decent numbers, but on one perfect January night, January 2nd, 2001, in an overtime game against the Sacramento Kings, Tony Delk dropped 53 points on a ridiculous 20 for 27 performance from the field, including 13 of 15 from the line. And this is my favorite oddity of this whole thing. Not only was it the only time he ever scored 50, it was the only game in his career that he scored more than 30. Good for him. That's great. I believe we've discussed Tony Delk briefly on the pod before, but I didn't realize how stacked that draft class was. I'm glad that he can somewhat put his name, not only because it's such a good name, Delk, what a great last name, <laughs> but he had that one performance to be like, I'm here too, guys. Hello, Mr. Nash. It's me, Tony Delk. Yeah, and I mean, I imagine, obviously, he's an NBA player, so there's a lot to be proud of, but when you're somebody who wasn't a superstar level athlete, like, that's something that you always get to have. Mm -hmm. Like, years after you're retired, you get to tell your grandkids about, like, yeah, I scored 53 points in an NBA game. I will never forget, I was never a big scorer when I played basketball in high school. I was more of the assist first point guard and a defense heavy, uh, as I've been compared to Patrick Beverly because of the trash talk as well. But there was one game where I scored 17 points, which was the most I ever got. And uh, I will remember it for the rest of my life because usually I would get like six points, eight points. So for me to like, you know, double slash triple my normal output felt very good. And the inspiration for it was my dad said I wouldn't have to get a haircut if I scored 15 points. And he hasn't gotten a haircut since. <laughs> this was in my, I had a bowl cut in high school and I didn't want to get a cut phase. So uh, that's how I rebelled is I scored more than 15 points in a basketball game to keep my bad haircut. I, I think my career high was 20. I scored 20 in a game in sixth grade. And the coolest part about it was I remember the other coach had his players double team me, which had never oh, happened Oh, that's before. such a great point of pride. That is very Yeah, fun. I was very proud. The saddest part about my game was that 
The other team we were playing was very bad. That was what led to me scoring so much is they were just not particularly good. And I didn't realize until after the game, one of my old coaches who was now working with the varsity team and they played after us, he walked up and he was like, did you know how many points you scored? And I was like, no, I wasn't really like keeping track of it. He was like, you scored 17. And then I looked at the scoreboard and the other team had 18 points. And wow. I was so upset because if I had known, I for sure would have tried to score again so I could say I outscored the other team. Are you kidding me? I would have done that so easily. Man, that's a pretty poor team. <laughs> the final score was like 18 to 52 or something. Yeah, they were they were quite bad at basketball. Oh, I love it. Well, that is my three on three. Oh, wow. That was a good one. That was fun. I like the, the upbeat note that we left it on. And speaking of upbeat notes, this that actually happened is one that I've had booked for a very long time, and I'm very excited to bring this to you. Adam, are you familiar with a little song called Round Ball Rock? Oh, I could hum it for you right now. <laughs> so for anyone unaware, there is an iconic NBA on NBC theme song for basketball that played for about 10 years called Round Ball Rock, and it is perfect. It's been my phone ringtone for the past 11 years. And shout out John Tesh. Shout out John Tesh. It's one of the best pieces of music ever created, and this song being created actually happened, and I'm very excited to let you know more about it because I had had this marked. I have a running note on my phone called Horse Ideas. Round Ball Rock has been there for a very long time, but I always thought, ah, I need like some sort of history. Like if someone would just write one of those oral histories about it, then I'd have all the information I need. Well, shout out to Jake Maluli of The Ringer because on July 27th, he posted the oral history of Round Ball Rock. And now I've condensed it into a segment for this show. So all of this credit goes to Jake for putting this all together. We'll put the link to the full article, but here is, uh, here's the basic summary of the history behind Round Ball Rock. I cannot wait for this. So for everyone context-wise, you might be familiar with the song because it's so iconic. We will edit in a clip of the music right here so you know what it sounds like. So let me take you back, Adam, to July 1989. You are one years old, I believe. I was two. I two. Was two. Ooh, big boy. <laughs> and Dana Barris was about to be drafted by the Supersonics. What a time. <laughs> so John Tesh, who, fun fact I learned, is six foot six. The composer of this song could have been a player too. <laughs> but then if you look at him, could he? Nah, probably not. <laughs> so he was in France covering the Tour de France as both a broadcaster and a composer for theme songs. Now, this is a strange market that he's worked himself into where he is in front of the camera talking about sports and then also producing the music that plays behind the sports clips. But hey, if you're good at stuff, you're good at stuff. That's true. He's multifaceted. He knows a whole lot of stuff. So while he is in France, he learns that NBC is going to start airing NBA games starting in the 90-91 season. And you just can't think about anything else except for trying to put this theme song together for them. NBC really wanted this because they had just lost the rights to baseball, which was like their bread and butter for sports coverage that year. So that next year, they really wanted to hit the ground running with basketball. And they believed that having a really good theme song could be a key to success. Man, they got in at the right time. Think about that. Just mm -hmm. as the 90s are starting. Mm -hmm. You've got Magic, Bird, Michael Jordan. It is the perfect time to start covering the NBA. So before working at NBC, he was an anchor and then he 
started doing an anchor job at NBC because that was his previous experience, but then he started working on compositions as well. He made some initial ones for the Tour de France, and then NBC people just kind of started asking him if he could make music for specific situations and sports, and it just got to the point where he was good at delivering an emotion with music, kind of these unquantifiable qualities, and he would just make it happen, and it was perfect every time. The John Williams of sports. Pretty much. One of his bosses about it said, quote, John's music always came from much more of a visceral than a cerebral place. He would just show me something, and I would say, how the hell did you come up with that? He could just pull stuff out of the air. I believe it. So now we move on to how he actually created Round Ball Rock, the song itself. It just came to him all at once, the fully formed idea. But he was in France, he didn't have a tape recorder on him, so he didn't want to forget this. This was like 2 a.m. He didn't want to forget it, so in the middle of the night, he calls his phone in his home in Los Angeles and leaves a voicemail on his phone singing the song so that he doesn't forget it when he goes to bed and wakes up. Now, I'm going to send you a clip of that actual tape because he does a live concert later on in his life in California, and he plays the actual voicemail on his old school answering machine. Hi, this is a message for me about the NBA theme. Here's an idea. It goes like this. The performance is so funny, and this is also, I'm sure you run into this as a stand-up comedian, where you just think of a joke, so you really quickly write it down in the middle of the night on a napkin or... Yeah, no, you that happens all the time, and if you don't write it down, it's out of your mind immediately. So uh, that, that definitely tracks for me. It reminds me of one of my favorite Mitch Hedberg jokes, which is, if I think of a joke in the middle of the night, I try to write it down, and if I don't have anywhere to write it down, I just convince myself that it wasn't that good, and I go back to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> or I gotta convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. <laughs> so you might notice from that clip that the beep kind of happens very early. So John Tesh about this said that the machine cut him off. So he had to call back a second time and then say, here's the middle part. Things were more complicated <laughs> back then. You couldn't do any voice notes on your phone. Nah, it was so hard. And he also on the record said that the next morning he woke up and completely forgot what it was. Really? So when he finally got back to Los Angeles, he was very excited. The first thing he did was put down all his bags, run to his answering machine, put it on top of his piano and hit play. He played it and then wrote all the music for it. And thus it was beginning to be born. So is there a world in which his answering machine screws up and we don't have round ball rock because he can't remember it? There is. And I don't want to think about this world. It would somehow make 2020 even worse. Honestly, if something happens to me, God forbid, all I want played at my funeral is just a rotation <laughs> of round ball rock and the theme from Jurassic Park. Is that so much to ask? <laughs> Not at all. I think it's perfectly normal. Maybe the two best songs of all time. Yeah, for sure. So now that he took this voicemail and created a piano note version of it, the next step is to bring it to NBC. And most composers, when they do this, they will just record them playing it on the piano. And then when they're in the room with the executives, explain what the other instruments will sound like. You know, the strings will come in here like this. The guitar will come in here like this. But... What John Tesh does is not only does he use a synthesizer to do every other instrument, but he also gets with a video editor in LA and gets footage from the 1989 NBA Finals and makes 
a highlight reel with the song so that they can see exactly what it would be like if they used it on TV. Honestly, no joke, that's super impressive because that's one of those things where it's like, it's easy to tell someone you can do something, but to show them this is what it will be, I imagine he probably walked out of that room and had the job already. Yeah, so that's what he said. He really wanted them to see how it could work because it was very different than a lot of other theme songs. There's no other sports theme song at the time that sounded like it. Yeah. So he really wanted to prove to them this can work. Now, before he sent in the final product, he was working with this video editor, and when they made the first version, something just didn't feel right. So he talked with the editor, and the editor pointed out that the music was slightly slower than the pace of the game. So John Tesh says, quote, I went back and increased the song tempo to 132 beats per minute, what I had determined to be the average dribble rate of a fast break in basketball, which is a little faster than a Donna Summer disco song. Wow. There's so much science behind it. Uh-huh. Now, before he turns in the tape, he just has to title it something. So he just goes, oh, I've heard some announcers say this is great round ball and it's rock music. So uh, round ball rock. Yeah, that'll work. And he never Literally, thought- Literally, who says round ball? Is that like an old term? Uh, yes, apparently Dick Stockton used to say during games, this is great round ball. So uh, yeah, I guess an old school announcer just said it. He thought it was just going to be a working title, but they loved it, so it stuck. Oh, man, every piece of this story is, is better than the last. <laughs> so he submits it. It comes down to him and one other song. One song was more traditional. His was more unique. They end up picking his. And when he gets the call, one of the executives says, John, we love the theme. Congratulations. This is great work. But then he wants it orchestrated. So John then works with an orchestrator to make all of the parts from brass to woodwinds to strings. And it's an 18 to 20 piece orchestra recording this theme song for basketball. It's one of my dreams to see Round Ball Rock played at like Carnegie Hall. That's, that's what I would love to do. It would be wonderful. And we will have a video with a link to him doing it at a live concert with a full band. It's incredibly impressive. It'll be on the website page at horsehoops.com. So Tesh was incredibly involved in the recording itself. And he realized this is a great song, but how are they gonna use it? So he works with NBC and they basically have him make a five second version, a seven second version, a ten, like all of these different versions. They make 10 different versions for different uses at the beginning, the middle, cut to a commercial, coming back from a commercial, just every possible iteration of the song. That's how much they loved it, that they decided it's just gonna be in the whole broadcast. It's just this song everywhere. It's so good, it's so good. Mm -hmm. Now, let me send you its debut. The video that it debuted on is the most 1990 thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Just from the thumbnail, I can already tell we've got Magic Johnson in a fucking top hat. Why would they outfit Magic Johnson like Mr. Peanut? <laughs> oh my God. He pulled a basketball out of the hat. <laughs> oh my God. The overlays are so 90s. <laughs> so we'll obviously put this clip on the website, but yeah, just imagine Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, and Magic Johnson in a fully CGI room with these very grainy highlight clips. They have this magic hat that stuff keeps coming out of. They're throwing CGI basketballs and spinning CGI basketballs. Oh man. Out of the hat when Larry Bird is holding it comes a ref that gives him a technical foul. And then at one point, Larry Bird is spinning three basketballs on top of each other in each hand. This is the video we're dealing with. What a weird creative choice to have a miniature ref pop out of a hat and mm -hmm. give Larry Bird a technical. Whose idea was that? 
Certainly not John Tesh. Not at all, but oh, it was so funny. So the rest of this oral history, which I cannot recommend enough for everyone to read, they just then have a bunch of quotes from people talking about how much they love the song. So Hannah Storm, who was an NBA on NBC host for 10 years, said, quote, whenever I'd hear it, my endorphins would start flowing. I had an almost visceral reaction to it because it was lights, camera, action, roll, round ball, rock. It had the quality of buckle up, we're gonna have some fun. She's right. She's so incredibly correct. Marv Albert compared it to the famous Bulls hype-up song, the He said it was that but for announcers. Him and all of his coworkers would just get incredibly hyped up when that song started to play. The other reason it was such a big deal is that at the time this was being broadcast in 1990, there weren't a lot of nationally televised NBA games. Most games would just be played locally for whatever team that you live near. But when they had the national games, which were very rare, it was like a big deal, like Monday night football vibes. So whenever you got the national TV game, you had this song and just made it feel that much more important that it's like, here we go. It's the big game. This is the song. So it's just something that's stuck in so many people's brains for such a long time. For me, as a child of the 90s, it is one of the songs that I associate most with that time in my life because when the Bulls became the Bulls, they were on national TV every single week. Like pretty much all of those games involved the Bulls for most of the season. And just hearing that song like fills me with glee that I can't even describe to you. Yeah. And and just going back on what you're saying before, Think of the money that NBC made from that one decision. Mm-hmm. Like, who knows if everything would have gone exactly the same, but they take over the NBA rights in 1990 as the Bulls are about to become the Bulls and basketball is going to become this phenomenon. And meanwhile, they don't have to deal with baseball, who's about to go into a strike and lose a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Pretty great circumstances for them. The other reason that this song stuck so well is that outside of sports, NBC was at its peak because Friends, Seinfeld, and ER were all on the air. So you have people watching NBC all the time. Whenever they play a basketball commercial, they use this song. So it just stuck in everyone's brain. Like this song is something that I think extends much beyond people that are basketball fans. Everyone's just like, oh yeah, that's the basketball song. No love for Frasier. I see how it is. Fine. (laughs) I don't know if Frasier was on the air at the time, or at least they didn't say it was. It was. It was. It was. Okay. Okay. In 1990? In the 90s. Certainly in the 90s. Maybe not in 1990. Well, I would say you should send a harshly worded email to Jake Maluli for not giving any love to Frasier, a show that I have never watched. You're not missing that much. (laughs) Rob Perez, who is Worldwide Wob on Twitter, a very funny NBA Twitter person to follow, says, quote, if the NBA was a religion, Round Ball Rock would be the congregation's opening hymn. For those who follow the NBA, that song has been the Hallelujah Chorus, which is very accurate. Sean Keen, who is a comedian and hosts a podcast called Round Ball Rock, said, what kills me most about Round Ball Rock is its little fanfare introduction. It starts with a... It's like NBC is announcing a medieval charge. You half expect to see a bunch of guys come out with lances. That's really funny. Yeah, I I guess I was aware that that little horn noise was there, but to really hear it explained that way, it's it's like a little bugle boy. Mm -hmm. Joey Devine, who is the co-host of Ramball Rock, says, it's like if Italian disco producer Giorgio Moroder wrote the intro song for the Black Knight at Medieval Times, which is incredibly accurate. I gotta be honest with you, that is so far over my head, I don't even know how to react to it. (laughs) So what makes me so happy about this story, aside from just how happy the song is and how 
ridiculous John Tesh is as a human is that it seems like the opposite of what we covered in the NBA Jam saga, which that the announcer kind of got screwed over by the royalty situation. John Tesh was very well compensated this in terms of royalties because he says, quote, the song played something like 12,000 times on NBC from 1990 until they ended their run in 2002. I joke that it put my two kids through college. Sounds like John Tesh is on fire. (laughs) Now, are you familiar with the Nelly song, Heart of a Champion, that released in 2004? Oh, I'm familiar with it. So this song is based off the rhythm of Round Ball Rock, and I didn't know this. Uh, John Tesh was consulted before they used it in the song. I did not know that. That's great. So here's what Tesh says about the situation. I got word in 2004 that Nelly wanted to sample Round Ball Rock. I didn't know who Nelly was. I thought it was Nelly Furtado. (laughs) So he knows who Nelly Furtado is, but not Nelly? I don't know. John Tesh is white, I guess? Uh Of course, I had to approve the use of the sample. One of the things I said is that I didn't want Ramball Rock to be a part of anything that has cursing all over it. Clearly, he does not know who Nelly is. Tesh continues, Nelly's manager was like, oh, that's fine. It's for a song called Heart of a Champion, a tribute to athletes. I had in the contract that Nelly had to send me a copy of the song before approval. Sure enough, I got the CD in the mail, stuck it in my stereo, and there were F-bombs all over it. I said, no, 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 sorry. You're gonna have to take the F-bombs out. And he did. All right. You know, I just think it's a little suspect that John Tesh specifically mentions Nelly Furtado, whose most famous song is called Promiscuous. Yeah, I guess he's more of a I'm like a bird fan than a promiscuous girl fan. Ah, oh, that's true. He likes the old stuff. The classic, the, the classic Nelly. <laughs> So the song just goes on to be a bigger thing than just the theme song for NBA and NBC. Like we've discussed, it just becomes what so many people, especially our age, this song is basketball turned into music. But beyond this, John Tesh played concerts. He had this big concert in 1997 at the Avalon Theater on Catalina Island. And this show, which is the clip from the answering machine thing, is just such a ridiculous event that I so badly wish I could have been at because he's got this full orchestra. He's wearing this ridiculous outfit where he looks like maybe a blackjack dealer or also a waiter on a cruise ship. Maybe magician? Yeah, it could be anything. It's very strange. I mean, it was the biggest event since the fucking Catalina wine mixer. So it's just something I wish I could be at. And John Tesh just seems like a very fun, chill dude. From his quotes in this oral history to this concert where he uses, he has the actual tape, the actual answering machine and everything. He makes it like a bit. He realizes how ridiculous this whole thing is. And I love it. And speaking of it being ridiculous, there is a whole SNL skit about it that is so incredibly funny and is one of my favorites. It's amazing. Yeah, the whole premise is Jason Sudeikis is playing John Tesh and he comes in and he's like, I've got this amazing song, but I also brought my brother with me. I think they call him like Dave Tesh or something like that. Yes, it is Dave Tesh. (laughs) Is it Dave? That's great. I don't even know why I remembered that well. It's been years since I've seen it. But the whole idea is that he's playing the same iconic song but then there are these weird out of place lyrics that are just like Tim Robinson saying basketball and we're gonna dribble the ball and we'll pass it and shoot it and they're like look we love the music but I don't really think the singing is necessary they're like guys it's kind of a package deal here I mean (laughs) (laughs) it's a great skit and thankfully John Tesh loves the skit as well so he's a good sport about it and obviously we'll put the link to that on the website too. It's just such a perfect song. It's one of my favorites. And I think the only fitting way to end this segment is with the top comment on the Round Ball Rock video on YouTube, which says, quote, this should be Jesus's theme song when he comes back. (laughs) (laughs) i tell you what, if NBC gets the rights to that, they're going to clean up. (laughs) So John Tesh made the most perfect piece of music ever in the history of the universe. That actually happened. No hyperbole there at all. You're, you're exactly right. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Horse Horses, hosted by Mike Schubert and Adam Mamawala. Today's episode was edited by Misha Stanton. It is edited and mixed by Mike Schubert. The social media is run by Mike Schubert. The art is by Allison Wakeman. The music is by Bettina Campomanes. And the website is by Kelly Schubert. Thank you, as always, to our producer-level patrons, Polly Burridge, Kendra Hadley, Adam Hartwick, Wouter Vandermaiden, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Catherine Lee, Siobhan Ellsbury, Shooby Dooby Doo, Godzilla Got Busy, Steph Corey for three! Bang! He sells seashells, Laurent James, Matt Barger, Lobster Bisquay, and, you know it, NBA legend Robert Sacre. <laughs> Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Horse Hoops and Twitter at Horse underscore Hoops because Horse Hoops was run by Dave Tesh and he just posted weird lyrics all the time. (laughs) Check out our website, horsehoops.com for all sorts of fun stuff that we talked about today, including truly ridiculous 1990s videos of John Tesh and Magic Johnson pulling things out of a hat, some fun box scores of LeBron James being not so great and all sorts of fun things. Mm -hmm. And if you want some sweet bonus content like us turning the three on threes into five on fives, us talking about basketball stuff in overtime, stickers, jerseys, so much more, you can head on over to patreon.com slash horse hoops. Hey, if you were hoping the multitude would add a new podcast to the collective that is a facts-based fictional world-building podcast, you are in luck because we have a new podcast called Exolore, which is a facts-based fictional world-building podcast with host Moya McTeer. Moya is fantastic. The podcast is super fun. If you want to hear some world-building that is science-based but fictional and fun, you can listen to it if you search for Exolore in your podcasting app or go to exolorepodcast.com. So as we do to round out every episode, we are going to put our hands in the middle and say something in unison on three. And you know what? I think that thing has to be Tesh. It has to be it's honoring be Tesh. John Tesh, the icon, the creator of the greatest song of all time and Jesus' theme music, John <laughs> Tesh. Tesh on three. You ready? One, two, three. Tesh! That's a great way to round ball out the episode. Hey! Oh, you piece <laughs> We really rocked this one. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go away. Bye! <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha